0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On May 4th, 1869, the Cincinnati Red Stockings played baseball's first pro game against amateur great westerns of Cincinnati. The shellacking they gave them was 45-9. Now 10 months later, a match between Princeton and Rutgers will go down as a first game in intercollegiate football history for many years football felt like those amateur great westerns had taken a shellacking year after year but that did not last forever because as football became football it took over as America's favorite sport welcome to the football history dude podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great right, This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is November 6, 1869, and we're here to witness the first intercollegiate football game, which happened to be between Rutgers and Princeton. 1869 happened to be a big year for sports in general. I mean, there were some other things talking about international cricket games and some other like swimming, racing polo boats and such. But this was the year that pro baseball was born, as stated in the intro. May 4th, 1869. But the creation of football as uh, getting closer to what we know it is today and pro baseball, at least at the beginning stages, that was not the only thing that was important for the growth of America, You see, we love our baseball, but we love our football more in America now. But back then, they sure loved to travel out west. And to make that easier, six days after Pro Baseball was born, well, <laughs> they completed the Transcontinental Railroad. This was completed with the ceremonial drive of what was known as the Golden Spike, or the last spike, completing the build of the Transcontinental Railroad in tiny little town over in Utah. But why is this important? Well, I think that America, football, is kind of synonymous. And just as football would start and just continue to expand throughout time, back in 1869, so did that Transcontinental Railroad. And I'm sure there's tons of stories and great history and other things that were impacted as this railroad would unite the East And the West. We got to talk about football, though. We have this week's guest, Tim Brown. Not that Tim Brown. We're talking about Timothy P. Brown. He wrote a book called How Football Became Football. 150 Years of the Game's Evolution. And just like the evolving transportation routes and all these other things that we have, today's football looked nothing like it did back in the day. Well, at least not close enough to what we would resemble as football, just like nowadays. How many people really drive the train as a main source of travel from the east to the west? I would go ahead and venture that the percentage of people crossing east to west and vice versa today, the percentage is nowhere near as high as it was back in 1860. Well, we'll move it over to 1870s. So just like the railroad wasn't always just there, Football was not always just there. It had to be built. And this book gives you an in-depth review of how football became football. And as always, I'm going to go ahead and leave links to the book and some other information in Tim's site in the show notes, which you can get to through your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com, which now takes you over to my page on the Sports History Network, the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. This is a network at the very early stages, so if you yourself know of a podcast that you think should be on the network, or you're starting to get that itch, you want to start your own history podcast or YouTube channel or anything else, well, if it's about your favorite sport, team, or league, hit us up on the contact page over at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. But for now, let's get into how football became football the first thing that really, as I was kind of going through here, I wanted to ask you, what was your inspiration for writing a book about how football became football?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, in order to tell you about my second book, I kind of have to tell the story of the first one. So, you know, I mean, I was, uh, I played football. I had a chance to coach when I was in grad school. And so, uh, but then I kind of went into the business world and my main connection with football was to either coach my kids, attend some games, and, and and I collected old Rose Bowl, you know, memorabilia. And so in the course of collecting, I came across a story that indicated that half the guys who had played in the 1918 Rose Bowl, which was played by military teams, half those guys died in action in World War One or World War Two. So I kind of started looking into that, it turned out, it wasn't true, but nevertheless, it was an overall a fascinating story. Um, and that's what the first book is about. But in telling that story, as I researched I found out there there are just a lot of elements of football from the World War I era that were just different from what I knew, what you know, what I had played and and been exposed to. And so I in order to tell that first the story of the first book, I had to get to know some football history. And some of the feedback I got from the first book was, you know, some of the stuff I like best was the old football, you know, understanding the background, how the game evolved. Uh, And thankfully it was something that I was very interested in. So I I just continued, um, I just continued down that path, just found more and more information and, uh, you know, kind of tried to determine how do I, how do I structure, this thing, you know, what's interesting? What's what's interesting to me? What do I think would be interesting to a reader? So essentially, what I've tried to do is kind of tell the story of football, <laughs> you know. And it's easy to think that football. I mean, I think everybody knows yeah, it came from rugby, but what does that really mean? How did that progression occur, right? And and what you know were there certain key points where the game went in one direction or another, and you know who did that? Who was involved?
0: Yeah, that's something that I can tell you. So I played football myself and I just always took everything for granted. I grew up, um, Barry Sanders fan. (laughs) I've talked about this tons of times on my show. I'm a Detroit Lions diehard, probably to a fault anyways. And as far as I was concerned, the whole Barry Sanders in the nineties era, like that just was football. And I just never contemplated, well, they didn't throw the ball back in the day. They didn't have all these other types of rules. So it's kind of cool that when I started the show, I was able to go back and talk about Walter camp, but then even further back is what your, your book even starts at. So speaking of fields of friendly strife, you have a website for that as well, right?
1: That's right. And, and I, uh, I, I'm kind of re, rehabbing it if you will. Uh, so that site was really geared towards the first book. Uh, but I, it's been then drifting more and more to the football history. Um, I'm actually, so I'm actually kind of rehabbing it, restructuring it right now. I may actually rename it and move it to a different domain. But anyways, at this point, it's com. Is that going
0: to be where it's uh, a lot of information from this book that the fans can kind of get a little bit of a taste and then they can go and purchase the book thereafter?
1: Yeah, so there's probably um, half a dozen articles that are purely football history, you know, kind of looking at the evolution of particular elements of the game. And then there's a bunch of other articles that are really about this this team or, you know, uh, some some more specific element of, of the game. Um, so probably two-thirds of the content on the site now is football-oriented, and then the other th- third is more World War One and, uh, you know, some of what happened uh, during the war.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, uh, they both tie together, definitely, because of um, when we had... Um Chris Serb on, oh, geez, I don't know, a couple months ago or something like that. And he had a lot of interesting stories that I had never known how football and World War I were connected.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Chris, uh, Chris you know, I took a more, a uh, more narrow path. I focused on, on two sets of teams that, and then, you know, kind of, that was the focus of my book. And, and then I talked about kind of the world and the war in, in, in general. Chris took a, more of a survey approach, looking at all the te- all the military teams at the time. So, you know, mine was kind of more in depth on thir- certain teams. His was you know, broader uh, and he focused more on kind of what the implications were of those teams or of service football uh, for the early NFL.
0: Yeah. And so then when you came to this next book, How Football Was Football, um, basically you need an offensive lineman to be able to pick it up because of how girthy this thing is. I mean, there's a lot of (laughs) knowledge in here that the fans of the show will be able to go over. And I know we're only going to cover just a very little bit. But uh, speaking of that, it was broken up into three parts I saw. Why did you choose those specific three parts?
1: So, uh, you know, there's a lot of information to try to cover. And so one of the challenges was how do I structure this in a way? if I just went chronologically, if I just said, okay, in 1877, here's what happened. And in 1878, this is what happened. I just didn't think that could hang together. So I had to try to find a way to uh, talk about the game uh, topically while also making sense chronologically. So I basically took the beginning of the game, um, you know, 1869, even though that's a little questionable, but so 1869 to 1905. So uh, 1905 to 1912 is when the the whole crisis was going on, Uh, but you know, big changes in in 1906. So that was the one breaking point. And then the second breaking point, um, I went with 1960. And, you know, you could argue it could have been any, any time in that, in that period, but I use 1960, because that's when, uh, in my mind, the biggest change in football, uh, from 1960 on is the influence of television and money and that was when in, uh, abc first or signed a contract where they brought in rune arledge and he you know he basically changed college football in the way we view it you, you know you just had tr- dramatic impact so that brought money um, money brought further specialization of coaches um you know more money for the players they could be full time athletes not part time athletes just all kinds of I just think money has a massive impact. Um, and then that time coincided with uh, you know some changes in the game itself as well as uh, really the true start of the desegregation of football. So that's kind of a, a key time period.
0: yeah, I mean, definitely. And again, uh, it's something that I didn't. I just took for granted uh, being a I grew up, I, I was born in eighty five. So when I grew up, it was like I said, Barry sanders eighty nine and I just everything from then on, when I was old enough, free agency was already here. So it was like fairly similar to how it is now, except for maybe the introduction of more news at you 24 seven. And then fantasy football really took off when the internet came on board. Other than that though, it was fairly similar. I mean, sure. We have the transition from more the running game to the passing game. And that kind of leads me to what were some of the elements of the game that now we maybe take for granted, but weren't even there in the early days.
1: You know, I think clearly the the forward pass is to me is the number one element um, in terms of uh, you know once you get past the initial years the the forward pass is absolutely critical and people you know even then when it, when it first came about it was it was heavily restricted you know you couldn't there were rules about you couldn't Uh, pass the ball unless you were five yards behind the line of scrimmage or five yards to the right or left. You couldn't throw it, throw it more than five yards downfield. You couldn't uh, throw it into the end zone, uh, which is why they didn't even, it wasn't even called the end zone yet. It was still called in goal. Uh, So they, you know, they had to adapt rules over time. So that's one of the things, I, I think the other one that, and I, kind of talk about it as much in the epilogue of the book as as during uh, the content is just the uh the introduction of, of blocking you know we take we just take it for granted that blocking has always been a part of the game but when it came you know it came from rugby it was rugby when they first started the game here in, in America they weren't planning to create a new sport they were playing rugby and then they started tweaking it and in rugby, you can't block, and so for you know that really I think with all the CTE and everything that that we focus on nowadays, um, I think the biggest the biggest thing that you know we we focused on tackling in terms of trying to address CTE. I really think blocking is where we have to go next. We have to find ways to reduce the amount of blocking in the game if we're g- going to address that part of that negative aspect of football.
0: So is, is that still the case in rugby? They cannot, they can't block down the field.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the term offsides, you know, the origin of that is, you know, that you're in, if you're in advance of the person with the ball, then you are offside and you cannot obstruct somebody else. If you're behind the person with the ball, then you are onside. And so, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, parts of the parts of this is in the book, but onside kicks onside punts, all of those kinds of things, you know, we kind of explain them and the impact of what they first called interference, but it became what we call blocking. So running in, running in advance of, of the person with the ball and interfering with a defender that, w- that wasn't there.
0: When I was, uh, when I was younger, I only played soccer. Well, we'll call it football, but as far as Americans go, soccer Yeah. yeah. Uh, one time in my life. And they kept calling me for offsides. I'm like, what is, this? I don't even know what this means. I'm trying to go up there so you can kick me the ball. So I can. they stuck me on the defense. They called me the enforcer because let's just say I wasn't the fastest cat. So <laughs> I got a lot of those cards. I don't remember what color they were, but uh, I it just, it's amazing how things have transformed over again. Like you said, like blocking, it's like, the fundamentals of football it's when you're in it if you don't if you can't block you can't do anything and back then like you said it was not even in existence and again this book is going to give anybody that wants to listen to it an in-depth look at all these various rules one thing i did see in there was the images of like it was funny how like they were holding that the ball and it was like they were well should we shot put it should we how do we throw a spiral and so like how did that transformation of you said passing was a big one how did that go
1: so I think one of the misconceptions that um, most people have about football is so kind of everybody knows that in 1906, those forward pass became legal. And so it's not as if they didn't have forward passing before they had it a lot. It was just illegal. And, And by that, I mean, back then they called what we would call a lateral, they called a pass. So, Um, If you if you read through newspaper articles about games from you know the 1880s up till you know through 1905, teams got penalized because they did a forward lateral, right? But it was really a forward, you know what we they called it a forward pass. We would have called it a forward lateral, and so it was a part of the game. And so when they first approved legalized forward passing, they were thinking more along the lines of forward laterals, not the downfield overheads, you know, overhand spiral throw that we all know and love today, right? So in the first five, six years of football, most teams, you know, barely, barely used the for- the forward pass. They they used technique-wise, used kind of a basketball set shot, you know, two-handed push. They flung it like a gr- grenade. They did all kinds of crazy things. Um, but there was this one guy... Bradbury, Robert Robinson, who played at St. Louis, U, who had learned how to throw the overhand spiral. Um, and he started using it. St. Louis, U had tremendous success in the 1906 season. Uh, but you know, they were out in St. Louis, they were out in the hinterlands for football. You know, back then Eastern football was king, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, they were playing pretty good ball, but pretty much everybody else was kind of nothing, um, at least in terms of the you know Eastern press, and so they kind of got ignored. But over time, teams started picking it up, and they were exposed to it. And you know, so a lot of people know of the story of Newt Rockney and and uh, Notre Dame coming into Army in nineteen thirteen and executing forward passes like nobody out East had ever seen before. And so that kind of really popularized the type of approach uh, that came with the overhand overhand spiral.
0: Was that the photo that I saw? Because it showed specifically somebody throwing an overhand spiral. Yeah, that was that was uh, Robinson of St. Louis. Uh, Speaking, going back to the photos, I mean, you have normally you don't have this many photos in books. It was it's very cool to see all these old time photos. How did you go about acquiring all these?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think first off, just why do I have that many? Right. So it, it's just you know I think there's a lot of things where when you go back. You know, I'm trying to describe h- how things worked back then, and and so I, it's really being a translator. I'm trying to translate what was happening back then and put it into concepts that we understand today. And sometimes that's hard. Um, it's like certain languages. There's no direct translation for certain words, and so um, images became very helpful to illustrate that. So, if I'm ta- you know I talk about nose guards, so before there were face masks. Um, even before there were helmets, people had broken noses. How do you protect it? So they wore these things called nose guards. And they're hard to describe, but a picture pretty much tells you what they look like. So, you know, uh, so to find the things that I had trouble or just thought would be better communicated via image, I had you know plays and formations drawn up. You know, those were. But otherwise. I basically scanned university archives. I bought a fair number of old postcards Um, back in the day before, you know, Twitter and Facebook people would get images of teams or, you know, plays in action, things like that, print them off on postcard stock and mail them to their buddies. And so there's images out there that just, you know, kind of illustrate certain concepts. So, you know, I've got a, got permissions from a lot of different universities and other kinds of museums and some, you know, individuals uh, to use images of of their teams in action or uh, whatever it may have been stadiums, etc.
0: One of them I saw was antiquefootball.com and I kind of went over their website yesterday. How did you get in touch with them?
1: Uh, you know, so I had come across um, so Chris Horning uh runs that site. And it's just a fabulous site. Uh, it's just got so much cool old stuff. And so, you know, I just reached out to him. I mean, it really went up. My, the early equipment information that I wrote was, you know, certainly heavily influenced by the information uh, from his site. That was really, you know, kind of my key guiding path. Uh, he kind of stops after 1910, 1920. So everything else then, you know, I kind of had to go find on my own, I guess. Um, but uh so you know, just reached out to him and said, Hey, there's a couple of images that you know I'd like to be able to use and he, you know, he provided permission. So so that was nice. Very, you know, very thankful.
0: Yeah, it's just I went to a site because of you and I, I looked at some of the cool rotating helmets that like I guess you can call them helmets, the <laughs> protect protecting pads and I saw the nose guard you're talking about. And what are what are some of the other elements that maybe someone like myself would go to a site like Antique Football, and it's in your book, but I'm like, whoa, I never knew this existed.
1: Yeah, so there's just lots of things like, um, so the, you know, we think in terms of helmets early on, they, they wore nothing, or they wore really headgear, or they called them head harnesses oftentimes, and they were much more like, uh, more like a wrestling headgear. You know, it kind of protected your ears from cauliflower ear. Maybe some abrasions, you know, were avoided, but otherwise really didn't offer, you know, much protection. And so the, a helmet is once you actually have a hard shell that kind of protects mechanically, protect, you know, offers protection. So there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of cool stuff like that. Lots of images of, uh, you know, when the game was a bit more rugby oriented, uh, a lot of guys wore shin guards, which you know, really doesn't happen too much anymore. The, uh, you know, it just, there's all kinds of, well, in his case, he's got um, lots of information on shoulder pads, right? So that's one of those words that are a term that we don't really think much about, but the original shoulder pads really were just pads. You know, they were like leathers. It was like in a piece of upholstery or something, you know, stuffed leather or stuffed cloth that people sewed on the exterior of their jerseys on the shoulders. They, they sewed them on the sternum, they sewed them on the elbows. Um, so shoulder pads were just pads on the shoulder. You know, nothing, no, there was no hard, you know, kind of mechanical protection to them. They were just, just pads.
0: (laughs) Yeah. One of those pads I saw was, um, can't remember if it was Rawlings or Balding on his site, but it was just called somebody's football armor, and it was like this yeah. whole suit of armor. It was awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it was Whitby's or Whitneys, because I've got that. In the, you know, uh, that was one of the one of the images that he offered uh, permission uh, to use, so that's in in the book as well.
0: And that kind of leads me to some of the through your uh, findings and research and like that. They called things, and maybe it's just because it's a different era, but I just thought the romanticizing of the way they talked about everything, including sports, like Grantland rice and and people like that. Like, did you find any other, like the way that they explained rules and things like that, that just kind of stuck out in your mind?
1: Um, yeah, you know, I, I think there was, uh, you know, football has always had this kind of machismo, <laughs> you know, the, the mano mano thing. And, and, and frankly, that's, that's a really neat part of, of the game, uh, but it's, uh, there was a much more of kind of the, you know, this whole thing about the, you know, the collegiate, you know, all American guy sort of thing. And so a lot of the early justification for football came from this thing called muscular Christianity. I'm not going to get into that but much, but it, I mean, it's just the idea that um, as America urbanized and more and more people had office jobs, there was this fear that they were becoming soft. And so, athletics in general, and then football in particular, offered an, an opportunity for these young men from Harvard and Yale and wherever else uh, to go to battle without going to battle, right? Without really going to battle. So, um, you know, it helped people learn, you know, teamwork and um, how to, you know, be rough and tough and and strive and, and sacrifice and, you know, all, all, all kinds of things that are, are good and valuable, you know, traits or things to, to pursue, but it was, uh, you know, kind of the, some of the downside of football and the injuries, etc. were justified in part based on this kind of idea that, well, you know, you got to live to, you got to learn to, to be tough.
0: Speaking of that same thing and going back to your fields of friendly strife, when I had that interview with Chris Serb he kind of brought that up a little bit now, granted he's not going to, he's not by any means saying football saved America for the war, but in a way it kind of that mentality, like you just said, kind of helped build us to get to that point, our troops, cause they weren't necessarily prepared at the time. He said,
1: I don't know that that much changed in some, in some respects in terms of, of, uh, you know, the, so there was a lot of conversation during both wars about high school athletics and training young men, men and, and preparing their bodies and being healthier and, you know, those kinds of things. And so, um, so it was important, but I think it, during the, during World War One in particular, um, a lot of camps had kind of intramural leagues, both to entertain the guys at, and the, you know, so each battalion might have, might have a team or each regiment had a team. And, um, but on the other and then they also had an all-star team that represented the camp in competition against against other camps And so those guys that was that was the same kind of PR as universities use their their athletic teams for you know it was the same thing you know they were out showing how how tough and robust and athletic and good uh, the soldiers at this camp were or the Marines at this you know at this base et cetera, you know etc so it's it served, Moral purposes, you know, they thought athletics would keep them out of the, the soldiers out of the red light district. They thought, um, you know, it just helped them become helped condition them, etc. Um, and then, you know, definitely the PR function was a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe some of that financial backing because they were out there seeing their boys fight in the, on the gridiron, I guess you could say, then fighting overseas.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there were lots of, um, you know, every as the war progressed and you know, initially America wasn't really, wasn't involved at all. And then it took quite a while for a lot of Americans to actually get involved in the action, but you know, sports pages always had an honor roll of area athletes who were wounded or killed in action or whatever, whatever may, may have happened. And, you know, we had the Spanish, Spanish flu going on at the same time. So that, you know, that influenced things during world war one, but yeah, so it was, uh, Yeah. Just played a, you know, it it played this PR role and, you know, a lot of times the games were played either for charity purposes, you know, the gate went to charity or it went to fund athletic activities uh, in the camps.
0: Right. Yeah. To be able to pay for what you're doing without having to take extra funds from uncle Sam or something like that. That's right. That's right. And because of going through those two major wars and football had. Had a hard time at the beginning trying to survive. What were some of the changes in the game that you saw from World War I or World War II or both? Yeah, I think, so
1: I, I think from World War I, probably more than anything, there's probably two things that affected football. One is it just kind of d- democratized the game. So there were high schools playing football before World War I, but it just exposed a lot of young men to the game because they they were exposed to it in camps and at a game much higher level than than they had seen in their small farming community. Um, So I think World War I, the main impact was democratization. In World War II, um, it was unintended, but I think the biggest impact that the war had was uh, its impact on the substitution rules. So in '41, actually, before we got into the, before America got into the war, um, a lot of guys were getting drafted. They were concerned about uh, the limits, limited number of athletes on their rosters, and so they implemented a rule. Because b- before that, uh, you know, things varied a little bit, but fundamentally, once you left a game, you couldn't re-enter, or you couldn't re-enter until the beginning of the next quarter, or you know, whatever, you know, it varied from time to time. But basically if you were in the game, you played the whole game, right? The, the 60 minute and. And, um, so in 41, they decided, okay, we're going to allow for basically unlimited substitution. You can switch guys in and out. But when they did that, their intention was really just so that kind of the star of the team, if he got tired or banged up a little bit, you could pull him out put somebody else in for a little bit and then reinsert him when he got better. So they, they expected it to be used in a very limited manner. And that's actually what happened until 1945. Uh, Michigan was playing army and army was, you know, had two Heisman trophy winners on the team or future Heisman trophy winners. Uh, so Michigan was just going to get demolished. And so Fritz Chrysler, the coach at Michigan at the time decided to, create an offensive unit and a defensive unit and shuffle them in and out. And he did that towards the end of the, it was either the last game or second last game of the season. Uh, And other people got wind of that and said, Hey, this is a pretty good idea. And then boom, you know, within three years, pretty much everybody was using was substituting, you know, liberally. And then the colleges cut that back uh, in the fifties and returned to it really in the sixties full time. Uh, so I, you know, and I think the substitution rules have played as big a part in the change in football as, uh, well, it's, it's in my top 11 changes in football is, you know, changes in, in, uh, in substitution rules, you know, cause it impacted, you know, everything we think about in terms of when you, when you had, when, when you expanded, when you went to you know, kind of full substitution, you needed more players. So rosters expanded. You needed more coaches because you needed somebody coaching the offense and somebody coaching the defense. So coaches got more specialized. They thought longer and harder about just defense or just offense. They created more complex, more innovative schemes. The players got better. You were able to, you know, because of they, they could focus on specific things. Um, and then, you know, you, you also ended up with uh, – you know the bodies of players changed because of the substitution rules so a guy who in the past if you were an end you were an end you had to play defensive end and offense offensive end right so um that was a different potentially a different body type than when you start going with wide receivers and tight ends and defensive ends as really very different types of players
0: and that's just crazy how one little rule really out of necessity change and transform so many other things down the line what are some of the other rules that maybe went away that we have no idea about that used to be back in early football history
1: yeah so you know one of them that doesn't go back that far uh but um so what you know i started playing football and uh, as a you know like grade schooler and I guess it was the early seventies, something like that. And uh, at by that point, if you were an offensive lineman, if you put your hand in the dirt, it stayed there. Right. Um, whereas that wasn't the case, you know, just even in the, that didn't come into being until the sixties. So prior to that offensive linemen could put their hand down and then shift. And, so they had these things called sucker shifts, which I talked about briefly and about just ways to kind of trick the defense and draw them offside by having your offensive line move laterally. Um, offensive linemen used to be able to go run downfield, you know, on pass plays. So there were there was no restriction on where, where the offensive line could be. And that was in the days when they didn't have – they didn't wear numbers, and especially not what numbers on the front of their jerseys. Um, and before they numbered, before players were numbered so that centers had their number began with a five and guards with sixes and tackles with seven. So defenses could be very confused about who's an eligible receiver and who's not. Um, especially if, you know, the offense has shifted formations in advance. So, it and of course the referees were, or the officials were equally confused. <laughs> so, you know, so there's, there's things like that, that it's just, uh, the rules just have evolved. I, I think another one of my top 11 changes is the introduction of hash marks. And people are like, God, how could that be important? But you don't, you know, if you don't understand, you know, think about what football would be like without hash marks. So if you got tackled, or if a ball carrier is tackled a yard from the sideline, where does the next play start, right? Now we just, we know it goes into the hash mark, but back then it didn't. It stayed right there. If you were tackled a foot from the sideline, the ball started, you know, the next play started there. And so teams had to, it was a regular part of practice in their playbooks. They had these unbalanced formations where the center was on the sideline and uh, play started from there. (laughs) So, I mean, it's one of those things that even like the, I've got two images in the book that show that. And even, you know, if you don't see the image, it's hard. It's really kind of hard to imagine that, you know, but it's, you know, you see these, everybody's over on one sideline because that's where they're snapping
0: the ball. How did it work for field goals? Did they, so if they were tackled on the sideline, that's exactly where they had to try to kick it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so when you think about that, so an implication of, of that is if, say you've got the ball on the 15. Okay. And it's third down. What are your choices for trying to, uh, for trying to, you know, get a touchdown. So if you're at the 15, you don't want to be tackled out wide on a sweep because now you've got to kick the field goal from the 15 yard line or whatever over near the sideline. Right. So you have a terrible angle and it's a longer kick. So, You know, without hash marks, it constrained play calling, even when you're in the middle of the field, at least, you know, if you were down in the red zone. Right. So, you know, there's things like that, that, that just, you just don't realize, or most people don't realize were once part of the game, but they finally, you know, 1933 is when they introduced uh, the concept of hash marks uh, and it just dramatically changed the game.
0: Yeah, my Detroit Lions have a little bit to play with that, even though that's not what they were called at the time, huh?
1: Well, so the tell me, tell me the reference to the Lions because
0: the Portsmouth Spartans and the Chicago Bears.
1: <laughs> I I sometimes forget that uh, the Lions were were from Portsmouth. So right, yes, right. <laughs> you're exactly right. Um, so that it turned out that the the colleges were already talking about and had had recommended some rule changes they'd recommended essentially the uh, something along the lines of hash marks um, before that Chicago bears game that ended up and you know, lions game that ended up being played indoors, which is why they ended up, you know, they had hockey boards there. you know, So they had to move the ball in away from the hockey boards in order to, uh, in order to play.
0: Yeah. It's just like the Calvin Johnson pass. We always have to make real changes after the lions get screwed over because they had that <laughs> one where, what was the? Uh, I can't remember. I think it was Bronco Nagurski throwing it to Red Grange, but there That's was right. the he wasn't five yards behind the lines. That's kind right. of crazy rules. I mean, that was something that changed at that point too, wasn't it? Like the whole behind the line of scrimmage.
1: Yeah. So uh, up until that point, um, you couldn't throw a forward pass unless the passer was five yards behind the line of scrimmage, and so um, there's controversy with Bronco Negerski executing essentially what what became a jump pass during that that 1932 championship game and so um so they changed the rule the next year the the nfl did they changed it 33 was the first year that the nfl did not use the college yearbook or not yearbook rule book so they went with the they, they made the change they, ch- they created their own rule book they moved the goal post back onto the goal line they allowed passing uh, from anywhere behind the line of scrimmage Uh, and colleges didn't make that passing change until I want to say like 43 or it could have been 47. Um, But you know you think about that and so if you can't pass from within the first five yards then all of the quick passes in football you know all the little bubble screens all those things disappear right the quick slants cannot be executed. You know, anything that's a three-step, maybe even a five-step drop don't make any sense in, in, in that world. You you have to be, uh, you had to be five yards behind the line of scrimmage. So yeah, the game changed as a result of a relatively simple rule.
0: Yeah. It's crazy how things like that happen. I mean, I guess maybe Patrick Mahomes would have been like, yeah, bring it on kind of thing. But uh you know, some of these other Quick uh, West Coast offense type styles. Uh, speaking of the field goal, I did see another photo. How you kind of broke down the play, the ice bowl game with Jerry Kramer's block and the change in that. How did that? How did that field goal post change impact that play? Oh man, I'm going to go ahead and leave it there with a cliffhanger for you. You're going to have to tune in next week to learn what the field goal post and the change. Had to do with the Green Bay Packers and Super Bowls and all these other things, and the Ice Bowl. Who knows? Maybe there's a butterfly effect that could be taken if you go into back in time, my DeLorean, you go back to that year in Canada and do something that might change some kind of outcome. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and leave that as your teaser bomb for next week. You're going to have to tune in so you can hear that story and many more from Tim Brown and his book, How Football became football and again this reminds me you gotta head over to the sports history network which is a collection of podcasts shows and bloggers dedicated to reliving and retelling some of the lost or forgotten sports stories from our yesteryear you can do so by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com. but for now dudes i'm through if you're through thank you for listening to this episode of the football history dude Make sure you're the first to get the next episode. Please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com
1: for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.